All right, First Peter chapter 5. We're nearing the end of First Peter here. We, this morning we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. Next week we'll finish First Peter off. How many of you guys have been here since the beginning? We've lost most of the people that were here at the beginning, so uh, they've petered out. Ha ha. First Peter chapter 5. So let's read 1 through 5 and then let's dig in a little bit. Sorry for that dad joke on Mom's Day. First uh, Peter 5, chapter, one, or chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, Let's go through uh, seven. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Uh, when it comes to our church, there's a couple things that I will reiterate to people over and over again when they say either what is it that you appreciate about Anthem or um, what, what has been the greatest blessing. Uh, for me, it's honestly been seeing some of the structure that has taken place over the years. I love the fact that we're an elder-led church. I love the fact that we have stewards. We have people that oversee the budget here at Anthem, that I've never seen a check that's come in. I have zero idea what anybody gives, that there's a group of people that oversee those finances. I don't make those decisions. Um, I, I love the way this is set up because there's checks and balances put in place, and it's um, for my protection, for our staff's protection. It's also for our church's protection. But God has ordained a structure in the church. Um, He's put people in places to provide leadership to the congregation, and the leadership is no greater or lesser than the congregation. The congregation is no greater or lesser than the leadership. Um, We're equals in the kingdom of God, but God has ordained different people to provide different aspects of care for different aspects of his church, to provide oversight in his church. So there is leadership in the church. And when it comes to Anthem, specifically, we're an elder-led church, which means we have a group of men, seven of us uh, that have been together over the last seven years. Now, that is, as we're particularizing the two churches, um, that number is lessening as half are coming down here and half are going to be in Hayden. Um, But these men are men that um, do three things that we talk about on a regular basis. They provide direction, correction, and protection for the church. These men do not have their hands in the kitty messing with any of the money. They prayerfully consider where God is asking our church to go. They prayerfully consider what it's going to take to get there. They sit down with the team that does count the beans and can make some of the financial decisions and say, how can we make this happen? And there's all these checks and balances in place. So as as Peter moves into this section of uh, of Scripture here where he's talking in in chapter 5, he's talking about an eldership. He's talking about the governance of the church. And it's really interesting that he's also speaking in the midst of um, challenging a group of Christians or encouraging a group of Christians in the midst of suffering, that the church is going to need some sort of leadership in it in order to help keep it on the straight and narrow. And God has ordained it as such. And so 
Um, as we get into chapter five here, I just, I want to reiterate to you guys the fact that I, I have loved, I've really appreciated the way that this church is structured because I've watched many friends of mine who have planted churches and pastored churches. I've watched many friends of mine who have been on staff at churches or sat in the seats in churches that have seen horrible things done in the church and things misconstrued and, um, people given too much power, and they're not have being, being a plurality of elders that are making decisions together, but it's just one man making the decisions on his own behalf for what he thinks needs to be done, writing the checks and handling the money, and that just gets really, really dirty. And so that's not the case here. And so we, we really um, appreciate the fact that our, we are an elder-led church. So um, the last couple of weeks we've been talking through 1 Peter uh, and 4, specifically, the last two weeks, uh, we spent a bunch of time talking about suffering. Anybody remember the last two conversations we've had the last couple of weeks on suffering? And in, in a world that, uh, attracted to a feel-good kind of Christianity, uh, Peter left us with this, with a like decidedly unpopular command concerning suffering for Jesus, that we get to relate to Jesus in our suffering. Uh, there's a commentator named Thomas Constable who gave this overview of Peter's teaching, and he said this. He said, the most striking feature of Peter's teaching on suffering for Christ is its bold emphasis on the sovereignty and the initiative of God, even in the suffering of his own people, that God initiated it, that, that, that God was actually in it, that God was moving amongst it. And so I wanted to give you six things that we've kind of learned over the last couple of weeks. The one, that God allows us to suffer in order to demonstrate our character. Two, that those who identify themselves with Jesus will share in the sufferings of Christ. Three, that our sufferings um, will be an occasion for God's blessing. Four, that um, our suffering will actually bring glory to God. Five, that um, God then redirected our perspective on suffering by reminding us of the difference in the time and intensity of our sufferings as compared with those of unbelievers. And six, um, Peter kind of concluded with this exhortation to trust God and do right. Trust that he's got this figured out and just continue to act in obedience and do what he's asked of you to do. Uh, do you guys think that all of this teaching fits into the present day current church culture that we see developing in the Western society? Not really. There's a lot of like, I want what I want, like how can the church feed me and take care of me and give me what I think I want, not what does scripture say and how do I align my life, my heart with what scripture says, with the Lord himself and live my life in obedience to him. Uh, are we as a church prepared to suffer, like much less inviting, praying for it, like actually seeking God, asking, Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us in the midst of suffering? We know it's gonna happen, but what does it look like for us to stand up in the midst of it? Uh, when, when times get tough, the tough get going, right? And the, the weak fall away unless there's actually good leadership that prepares a group of people and helps hold them together. In fact, I, I think God's timing is so perfect. So even though it's Mother's Day and we're talking about eldership this morning, just a couple weeks ago we celebrated Easter. 
And, and we celebrated Christ's resurrection that, that, that had this immediate effect of actually plunging the apostles, like his disciples, the, the rest of Jesus' disciples, into complete confusion and disarray because they did not understand what was happening at the point that Jesus is crucified and he dies. And it's like his flock was scattered and they were like in, in fear, uh, in danger of like disappearing altogether. They were, they were being scattered. And, and until Jesus himself like stepped in and began to encourage the faithful to provide leadership for them. And, and so it's only natural that, that Peter would follow chapter four as we've been in with this exhortation to the leadership of the church to actually uphold their proper responsibilities in the face of persecution. Like the church needs to stand strong and if the church is gonna stand strong, it needs leaders in the church. They're gonna be obedient to the Lord. They're gonna stand firm on on the Bible itself as the authority. They're gonna respond as the Holy Spirit leads and be seeking Jesus. So Peter says, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So with Peter's last kind of therefore statement here, Peter sort of sets his gaze directly on the church's leadership. And so that's where we wanna dive in today, looking at the church's leadership. So Peter gives the elders of the church this exhortation. He says, I exhort you, the elders of the church, I exhort you. And when we talk about an exhortation, it's more than merely an encouragement. It's more than just some request. Like an exhortation is actually an appeal that we make based on a compelling argument or circumstances. Like we beg them to respond as they know they must. It's like calling something out. It's like we're exhorting them, but we want action. We wanna see people actually live into what it is we're encouraging them to do. And it's interesting that Peter doesn't begin his last section of this letter as you'd think he would. He doesn't say, I command you as an apostle of the Lord Jesus, he could have said that, like, I command you to do this. Instead, what he says is, I exhort you. As what? A fellow elder. Peter makes this appeal on the basis of, like, his own shared experience, his own obligation. And so he refers to himself as this fellow elder, a, a fellow under-shepherd, uh, somebody who's submitted somewhere else. He's, the elders of the church are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter was with them as this equal in the issue of suffering. Like he understood suffering because he himself went through suffering. So he's not telling them, hey, you should uh, relate to Jesus in the midst of suffering because that's just what it means to be obedient. I'm gonna go off and sort of lock myself in the house and get away from it all. Peter himself understood what suffering was. And when he encourages them, to relate to Christ in their suffering, what they knew was this is not a man just telling us to do it, it's a man that's actually doing it himself. And so when, they, when he talks about being a fellow elder, he's saying like, I'm not telling you this just as somebody who's got some title and position in church that's exercising his authority to you, I'm actually telling you this as somebody who is a fellow elder himself, somebody who is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's striving to live into the same exact principles and the things that I'm teaching you to do as well. 
And so he gives them this exhortation. But Peter is also this partaker in this promised reward of actually sharing in Jesus' glory. Not only does he relate to them in suffering and understands what they're going through, but he also is a partaker of this glory. So he has the same obligation as they do to honor Jesus through obedience. In other words, Peter must be prepared to follow his own advice. He doesn't just give it, he actually has to act on it, and that's exactly what he did. All the way, all the way up, to an upside-down cross, as tradition has it. But Peter was executed. And so what Peter sets up in, in, in this beginning here, in this opening verse, is this standard that we often even see repeated in secular circles, right? It's actually becoming less and less common in the church, but we hear this a lot. The, the principle is never ask someone to do something that you're not prepared to do yourself. Anybody ever use that? That line? <laughs> Military commanders are taught this in their own leadership development. Successful parents take on this viewpoint rather than do as I say, rather, or do as I say, not as I do. Coaches live by this standard because who will receive instruction from a coach who doesn't model it in their own game? Nobody. And so this is the essence of Peter's statement here. He exhorts the church to follow his lead, to do as he does. And he repeats this all the way through into verse 3. The, the leader is to prove to be an example to the flock, to actually live according to his own teaching. This is a massive challenge for me, honestly. There, there is not a Sunday that goes by that I don't feel a deep burden to uh, not walk off of the stage willing to walk out what it is I've challenged you guys with every single Sunday. It's a deep burden that I feel every single week. I do not want to be incongruent in what I say and what I do. I, I, I want, as I'm standing up here and I'm telling you guys, like, be prepared to suffer in your life. Actually, pray about that. Seek Jesus about that. What does it look like for you to relate to Christ in his suffering, in your suffering? Like, I don't just walk off the stage and go, have fun with that church, you know, like, we'll come back next week and talk about it, I'm going to go lock myself in my house for the week, and, uh, you know, you, you go live that obedient lifestyle, I'm going to lounge up in my chair and watch some movies all week. The leadership in a church need to understand that we're not up here to just teach principles and direct people we're actually challenged to follow in obedience to the Holy Spirit ourselves, to be led by Jesus. I want nothing less, nothing less in my own life than just to walk in obedience and walk with you guys. I mean, as we're particularizing our churches right now, one of the things earlier on, that the conversations that Buddy and I had was, I said, I feel really incongruent, Buddy, because I'm basically just a communicator. I bounce back and forth every Sunday and I just speak. But I don't feel like God's called me to lead from a stage. I feel like he's called me to lead from amidst a group of people, to walk with a group of people, move with a group of people, walk in obedience with a group of people. And so I just want you guys to know, as, as, as Peter is sharing this and he's, he's saying like he's willing, he's a fellow elder, he's gone through this. He understands where they're at. Like, I want you to know that 
this is how the leadership in a church should function. They should be people that are walking in obedience to the Lord, not just telling people to do that, but they themselves are challenged to do that as well. So I, I, think, I think Peter makes his appeal here on this basis of like a shared experience and obligation rather than on the basis of his authority and on the basis of his title because I think Peter believes that he can make a stronger case based on his life example than he can merely off his title. And I think there's a lot of people in life today who just try to get by off their title. They want position and they want power, but they don't want to walk in obedience. They want recognition, they want notoriety, and they want fame, but they don't actually want to walk that out. They don't actually want to suffer with the people. He says in verse two, um, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And in verse two, um, Peter continues by telling these leaders, you should shepherd the flock of God, and then he says, exercising authority. And so a little caveat for you guys, that word exercising does not mean forcing authority on people. That's not what he means there. It means taking responsibility for the oversight that you've been given, the the mantle that you've been handed. It's less a term related to a leader commanding themselves over people and more a term of a leader acknowledging the call that they've been given and the burden they've been asked to carry in leading God's people. That's what, when he says exercise authority, he's not saying just tell people what to do, command yourself and get them to do what it is you want them to do. He's saying like, Acknowledge that you've been given a mantle of leadership. And when you exercise that, you walk in that. You're walking in obedience. And then he goes on to say that you should do this not under compulsion, but voluntarily. That this isn't some obligation that you're fulfilling. It's a call that you've been asked to fulfill. Then he says, in accordance with the will of God. Again, you don't do this because you want a position or title. You do it because it's what God's asked you to do. Like there are days when I want to do everything but this. (laughs) But I feel this deep burden to his church. And then he says, not for sordid gain. This isn't about benefiting off of the gospel for ourselves. It's not about profiting off of Jesus' gospel, off of the good news. And then he goes on to say, with eagerness. Like, you do this with all you have. You're you're willing despite the cost. And then he goes into verse 3. He says, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Like, a leader leads not by lording over those in their care, but by living as an example In verses one through three, there's a series of principles for for church leadership that I think we need to understand. First, he says that a leader is to be, he he says a uh, a leader is to be an elder. Um, We've come to use that term as an office, but Peter's actually using this term more as a qualification than as an office. Like the literal meaning of the word is old man. In other words, Peter's calling himself a fellow old man among you. And and so while this term is also used to describe an office, like an elder in the church or a position, it also describes um, one of the inherent qualifications for becoming an elder in the church. You must be 
an older man. It wasn't for the young guys. It wasn't for the new converts. It had to be people that were tried and tested, that have chosen to follow Jesus for long periods of time in their life. They're spiritually mature people. And this actually confirms what Paul teaches in his letters to Timothy and Titus when he describes leaders as men who have obtained to certain levels of spiritual maturity. The the Bible views age as this necessary but not sufficient component of wisdom and spiritual maturity. There's something about getting older, right? Do you learn a little bit as you get older? Anybody in here? Am I the only one? You realize how much you don't know, right? But you can't become spiritually mature overnight. So, so age is actually a necessity. You can't fake age. And, and not all those who are older are also automatically spiritually mature either. So you can't assume that age dictates your spiritual maturity. Like the believer is expected to grow spiritually as they grow older physically. This is Throughout our life, the older we get, the more we seek Jesus, the more we grow, the more wisdom we have, the more we understand how to hear his voice and be led by him and walk in obedience. All believers should be reaching to the same degree of maturity, but only those who have actually matured should be called into leadership. Like all of us are spiritually maturing on a daily basis, but not everybody is called to leadership within the church. So, so elders should generally come from the older, more mature members of the congregation. We, we shouldn't elevate people into leadership positions too quickly or at too young of an age. Um, and this is one of my greatest regrets in ministry in my life, to be dead honest with you guys. Like I traveled for 10 years around the country, put 200,000 miles a year on a van, traveling with a bunch of skateboarders, traveling around the country, sharing the gospel. And when people ask me, is there any regrets you have over your years of traveling and doing skateboard ministry, like evangelism, there's one regret I have. It was taking somebody who could skateboard really well and had committed their life to Jesus and assumed that they should just be put into positions of leadership and stuck on a stage to preach to the masses. Because now I look back on that and I see where like, I pushed people into places of leadership that spiritually they were not ready to take on. Like We saw things backstage in the Christian world that would destroy any strong Christian, let alone like, somebody who's a brand new convert to Jesus, right? Like, there's bands on stage that are preaching Jesus in their songs and talking about the Lord and then they walk off stage and they're smoking a bowl and pounding beers and talking like everybody else. And when you take these new kids that are Christians, they come out of the skateboard world, most of them don't have dads. They've had these, most of them had really gnarly upbringings and they come to faith in Jesus and then you take them on the road. They have no prior church experience. They don't know what to expect. And then all of a sudden they're placed in this position where they see it all. And then they start going like, I don't think I want to be a part of that because those are a bunch of hypocrites. Their their mouths don't match their actions. And what I realized over time was like, I put people in positions of leadership too fast. There's something about becoming seasoned. Like we don't need to be perfect, but you need to have some time under your belt, serving Jesus, understanding him, learning how to lead people, making a commitment yourself to not allowing the junk that you see and experience in life to cause you to just jump off, 
like off the trail and completely abandon your relationship with Jesus. And so Paul's addressing this. Next, he, he, he says that leaders must serve voluntarily. And that may seem kind of odd since we don't see this um, typically happening today. But in some parts of the world, there's actually this strong desire to draft people into leadership. Like the, the, in, in third world churches where um, women vastly outnumber men, you see women pressing men into service as elders, like trying to force them into these positions because they need elders. But biblically, leaders have to be somebody who's voluntarily taking that position. They're not, people aren't looking at you going, oh, I see an elder in you, like I think you should step in and do that. It has to be the call of God on your life that's He's prompted you to make that decision because otherwise you won't stand strong in the test of time. Like if it's not a call, if there's not a foundation, if Jesus has not asked you to take that step into eldership. Four, um, leaders serve by the will of God. Like a person who discovers a sincere desire to be an under shepherd and to serve God's people in a leadership role is showing evidence of God's prompting in their own lives. That's why compulsion of any kind is strictly prohibited. We want to see somebody earnestly desire to lead and serve God's people because that desire is actually a reflection of God's choice. God raises people up to lead his church. And finally, um, the leader should be eager to serve. And this actually goes hand in hand with everything that we've already said, um, but it puts everything into perspective. It, It offers sort of this warning to leaders. If a leader wakes up one day and finds himself dreading his opportunity to serve, anybody ever been there? <laughs> like, I don't want to do this anymore. The joy is totally gone, and the desire to serve has actually become an obligation. Or, or if the privilege that we have to serve his church actually becomes a burden, then that person's actually ceased from being a shepherd. Like they need to step down. They're, they're no less an elder. I mean, I think that they're still called, but at some point in your life, like if you're not doing it out of a joyful, like a voluntary um, place where you are doing it out of the overflow of what God's doing already in your life and it's just a compulsion, you're doing it under obligation, what good are you to the church when you're not serving them in the joy of the Lord? Um, and then he goes on in 1 Peter 5, 4, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Leaders who have been faithful in their calling can be assured that at the moment they stand before Jesus, our chief shepherd, that there's a reward. And Peter calls this reward the crown of glory. And he says that this reward is unfading, meaning it's eternal. It's a reward that comes at the moment that we see Jesus. And it's a reward that lasts forever. And this, this word for crown that's used here in the scripture, Stephanos, is actually the word from which we get the name Stephen. And, and it's one of two words for crown that's used in the New Testament, the other being diadem. And diadem refers to the kind of crown that only royalty can wear, a crown you inherit, a crown that you cannot earn, but you must have bestowed upon you. And this is not the kind of crown that he's talking about here. This is a crown that's earned and it's awarded based on performance. It's actually based on your obedience. 
This was the kind of crown that was awarded to an Olympic athlete at the end of a race. It's, Paul uses this word in describing a different kind of award that he expects to receive. He says in 2 Timothy 4.8, in the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. So these are awards that are not given until Christ's return. Um, I, I know that not everybody in this room this morning is necessarily a leader or even interested in becoming a leader. So in case you were ready to like tune out this morning, um, I, I think that Peter kind of wraps this up and catches the rest of us in these next few verses. But I, I want you guys, I mean, I want you to read through 1 Timothy. I want you to read through Titus. I want you to understand what an elder is, what role they play in the church, why God has called them as um, leaders within the church, that they're not here to lord themselves over you. I really want you to understand that because there is leadership in the church today that is being taken way out of context and is abusing the authority, the titles that God's given them, and they aren't acting under the authority of God. It's a call. And it's not for everybody, and that's fine. But we all do have some call. We all have some fit in the church. When I look at our staff right now, I think, um, I don't know who in our staff is here. Austin, our worship pastor is here. I know Renee, who handles our finance and our HR, is here. Josh Borges, who oversees all our creative stuff, is here. Um, Becca Pack, who oversees our kids' ministry stuff, is here. Is there anybody I'm leaving out? Raise your hand if you're here. Um, these people work really hard. Caleb, I can't forget Caleb. This dude makes, makes the, uh, the facilities happen, man. And uh, these people each play their role, and not one role is greater than the other, but we need all the roles functioning together in order to, for the body of Christ to exist in its fullness. And so when we look at an elder, again, I don't want it to seem as though it's like, this is some elite in the church that maybe I'll get called to someday or I want to aspire to be that. No. But there's some that God has called to play those positions and those positions in the church, those roles in the church have to be filled. And those people who fill those roles are held to a higher standard. What you say better match what you live. Because Jesus has asked you to stand before his church Give an account for your own life and how you're walking this out, how you're fleshing out the Bible. I mean, we all have to read through Scripture and figure out where our fit is in the body of Christ. And I think over the coming years for Anthem Coeur d'Alene, this is about taking the couple hundred people that are in this room and saying, you all have a role to play. God has all fit you guys for specific roles and purposes within his church to serve the body, to lift up, to edify the church in Kootenai County, also to go forth and to evangelize and take the gospel to those in our community that do not know him. But Peter goes on here at the end of this passage. He says in verse um, verses five through seven, you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders and all of you, all of you do what? Help me out here. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the what? The humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And so Peter begins with this idea, he says, with younger men, like those not old enough necessarily to be elders, 
Your duty is to obey your elders. God's put them in those positions for a specific reason in your life. And actually, the, the Greek, uh, in the Greek, the, the, um, the word in the Greek for younger ones, sorry, the word in Greek means younger ones, and so it's speaking of everybody, men and women. Like, we all have to obey our elders. And it's really interesting, as an elder in this church, because I would consider myself a fairly stubborn guy, like set in my ways. And I have six other guys that sit on this elder team with me, and there have been numerous meetings where I've said, you guys, I think we should do this. And they go, that just does not drive with what, where we feel like the Lord's leading us. And I have to humble myself and say, Jesus, ultimately I'm submitted to you. If you want this to move forward, then you will speak to these other six men and we will move together. And if not, I need to be willing to bite my pride, humble myself before you and know that you've put them in a place of leadership in my own life. These men speak into my own life. They give me direction as well. In Hebrews 13, 17, and I will end on this. The worship team can't come up here. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And not because I'm one of them, but I think that in our lives, we actually owe our leaders a cooperative, loving submitted spirit so that we can help them in the difficult tasks they have in carrying out what God's asked them to do in the church. And in fact, as Hebrews says, when we resist them, we actually only hurt ourselves. And so Peter connects our obedience to our elders as this issue of humility and submission to God himself. So Peter, again, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, he emphasizes that our willingness to submit and to obey is really an issue of sovereignty, if we fully appreciate the unbound, unquestioned authority that God possesses in working out all things according to the counsel of his good and his perfect will, then when circumstances come upon us, whether good or bad, and when leaders direct us in ways that we may not understand, much less agree with, we don't fight back, we don't complain, we don't retreat. We won't quietly slip out the back door, find some new congregation where they do things the way that we like it. We'll prayerfully seek to know God's will and accept that his will is at work through the leadership that he's provided in the church. And so, so long as that leadership conducts itself, again, with, according to scripture, and so long as that leadership adheres to the doctrines and the principles found in the word of God, but I think we can confidently cast ourselves on him and trust him, that he's sovereign over all of this. He's the one building his church. He's the one orchestrating things and bringing things into place. He's the one ultimately that all of us are submitted to, especially those that he's put in oversight in the church. So I know, again, like odd message for Mother's Day, um, but as we reach passages in scripture like this, I, I think it's important for us to acknowledge this is why, again, we don't cherry pick scripture. Like we don't just find the verse we like and then live on that verse for a week. 
we go read the whole counsel of God and figure out what it is God is trying to teach us, how God is setting up his church. What is the purpose of church? What's your role in the church? What has he called you to? And I would prayerfully ask each of you in this room as you leave here this morning to say, Jesus, what is my role in the church? You may not have called me as an elder, but you've definitely called me to be a contributor and not somebody that sits in the chair. What is it he's gifted you with? Where is it that he's called you to serve, to utilize what he's put in you for his behalf in his church. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, I thank you uh, so much for your church, God. What a complete privilege and honor it is to serve in any capacity in leading your people. And God, this is your church. You sent your son, Jesus, to die on a cross. to go through a brutal death, God, in order to forgive the sins of the world. And through your resurrection, you brought new life, Lord, and you brought new power. You brought um, a new covenant, a new season into the life of your church. You launched something that would forever change history. And I just pray, Jesus, that as we sit here this morning, there would be some part of us that would say, God, sitting in the chair is just not enough. You've actually called us to step up, to contribute, to utilize what it is you've given us, to ultimately serve you, and in doing so, serve those that you've placed around us. And I pray for Anthem Coeur d'Alene, God. There's 7,000 people just south of I-90, and we know a large majority of them desperately need Jesus. And God, these couple hundred people that you've placed in this room, you've called as the salt and the light, as the city on a hill that can't be hidden. You've called them as to, to come and bring a flavor to the culture, God, to shine your light, Lord, to share the good news of Jesus with those that don't know you. And I'm just praying, Jesus, honestly, for revival in our community, that the lost would come to know you, that the bitter, jaded, Christians that have fallen away have, will come back to you, Jesus, would be willing to humble themselves and set aside their bitterness and their resentment and the junk that they've seen in church in order to just fully focus their, their attention and their hearts on you, Jesus. I pray for revival, Lord. I pray for revival. I ask that you come, Lord, in a powerful way. And I pray for the 200 in this room this morning that we would live our lives in such a way that we would live in humble submission to you, Jesus. We want your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, thank you for the privilege of carrying out your kingdom and your will through the individuals in this room. And I pray, Jesus, that maybe something this morning would spark something in our hearts that would challenge us to get up out of our seats and actually begin to walk in obedience, to pray for the sick, to cast out demons, to watch the dead be raised, to see the lost be found. And Jesus, you're gonna do that through the hands and the feet of those sitting in this room. And I thank you for that, Lord. I pray your blessing upon them. I pray as they leave today, they feel just supernaturally empowered, uplifted, encouraged by your Holy Spirit, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.